Alexander the Great, human organ transplants, stolen Little League dreams, translating Old Dutch, and much more. This is the third Highlights Podcast for 2022. I'm Bob Cutmore, and you're listening to the Historian's Podcast. Please support our fund drive by clicking the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. We turn our attention first to episode 419. English classics professor Edmund Richardson is author of the book The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria, the story of a 19th century British deserter who discovered the location of a city founded by Alexander the Great in Afghanistan in the 4th century B.C. A very unlikely story of someone called Charles Masson, British deserter, traveler, wanderer, fake doctor, fake pilgrim, fake Afghan prince, ended up making one of the most remarkable discoveries in the history of archaeology. Remnants of Alexander City are said to be buried beneath Bagram, Afghanistan, where the United States built a large military base during the Afghan war. Hello, I'm Paul Craddock. I am a historian of medicine from uh, Britain. I have written a book called Spare Parts, The Story of Medicine Through the History of Transplant Surgery. And that covers the history of transplant surgery from, well, ancient times until really pretty much the present day. In episode 420, we hear from Paul Craddock of UCL Medical School in London, England, on his book Spare Parts, The Story of Medicine Through the History of Transplant Surgery. Skin grafts to repair noses disfigured by battle or accident, for example, were done even in ancient times. Hi, this is Chris Lamb. I'm the author of Stolen Dreams, the Cannon Street, YMCA, All-Stars, and Little League Baseball Civil War. Uh, This book is about 11- and 12-year-old black kids who live in Jim Crow, Charleston, uh, South Carolina, in 1955. Uh, They're playing on an all-star team in the first black Little League in South Carolina. And their coaches tell them, they're going to keep playing as long as they keep winning. Now, this is a thrill for these kids because many of them, if they live in poverty, they uh, most of them have outdoor toilets. They have to deal with all the humiliations of Jim Crow South, and here they have a chance to play the white kids in baseball. As long as they keep winning, they can go all the way to every every kid dreams of playing in a Little League Baseball World Series in Williamsport. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen. Their dreams are stolen, and their souls are, are forever scarred. Episode 421 features Chris Lamb, a journalism professor, author of Stolen Dreams, the 1955 Cannon Street YMCA All-Stars and Little League Baseball's Civil War. The Cannon Street All-Stars became a national story for a few weeks, but then faded and disappeared as Americans read of other uh, civil rights stories, including the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi and the arrest of Rosa Parks for refusing to surrender her seat to a white passenger in Alabama. 
The Cannon Street All-Stars spent decades trying to forget what happened to them in 1955, telling people why their story matters and why they should be remembered, like the generations of other blacks who lived invisible lives, not just in Charleston, South Carolina, but elsewhere in America. This is Charles Gehring, uh, director of the New Netherland Research Center, which is in the New York State Library on the seventh floor near the uh, main desk. I've been uh, translating Dutch records for 40-some years. These are uh, the original records of the Dutch colony here in the 17th century. I'm also busy promoting people's knowledge of uh, Dutch heritage in the area. So it's not just a translation project, but a dissemination project as well, and an education project. We uh, try to make people aware of the unique area that they live in, in the Hudson Valley and Mohawk Valley. In episode 423, Charles Gehring tells us how he's been translating old Dutch language documents from the 17th century New Netherland colony. Gehring is director of the New Netherland Research Center at the New York State Education Department in Albany. In 1994, Her Majesty Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands conferred a Dutch knighthood on Fort Plain native Charles Gehring. Part German, part Italian, Gehring was born in his grandmother's house in Fort Plain. His family moved to Nelliston after World War II. His doctoral dissertation was a linguistic investigation of the survival of the Dutch language in colonial New York. Old Dutch is hard to understand, even for people fluent in modern Dutch, and many of the surviving handwritten documents are barely legible. In the 1990s, Gehring and William Starna, a longtime friend originally from St. Johnsville, translated their own book, Harmon Meindert's Vanden Bogart's Journal, A Journey into Mohawk and Oneida Country, 1634-1635. Vanden Bogart was a Dutch barber surgeon who lived in what we call Albany, what was then called Fort Orange. He was the first European to document a journey through the Mohawk Valley. His journal makes the first printed reference to the Iroquois Confederacy of Nations. Vanden Bogart became commander of Fort Orange and then was embroiled in a controversy, accused of having a sexual relationship with a male slave named Tobias. Vanden Bogart was charged with sodomy, a capital offense. He fled to Indian country. A bounty hunter caught up with him at an Oneida longhouse, and in an exchange of gunfire, the longhouse was set ablaze and destroyed. Vanden Bogart was taken back to Fort Orange. He escaped again when a sheet of floating ice badly damaged the fort. However, he then drowned in the Hudson River. Ironically, the penalty for sodomy was drowning. Gehring said, if you were to write all this in a novel, it would seem too absurd. More to come in this Highlights episode, an Erie Canal balladeer, the birth of Wall Street, 
grandfather's tools, and Hudson Valley history. Hi, this is David Brooks from Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site. We're going to be talking about how Killboy was here, the Erie Canal Balladeer. David Brooks is the education guy at Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site. Your title's more formal than that. Uh, What is it? Uh, Yeah, I I go with education director uh, here at Schoharie Crossing. And maybe a brief word as we start about what is Schoharie Crossing. Uh, It really is a crossing of the Schoharie Creek by the Erie Canal. Schoharie Crossing is a New York State historic site, and we are predominantly an Erie Canal site, talking about the original Erie Canal crossing through the creek, and then we're really well known for the remains of the Schoharie Creek Aqueduct, where the canal crossed over the creek. Um, And I also like to kind of put it in the context, we're also a location in which cultures had crossed paths, uh, even before with Fort Hunter being here and the Mohawk Village as well. In episode 424... David Brooks from Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site in Fort Hunter takes a look at life on the wild side of the Erie Canal with tales about the Killboys, including balladeer and canal boat towing company operator Tom Killboy. In 1938, Federal Works Progress Administration worker R.P. Gray met Tom Killboy. Killboy was interviewed in his apartment in West Troy, today's Water Valite. Gray found Killboy with the help of the police. He wound up working through the, the police department and Department of Health, so he found the apartment. He goes to the apartment, and, you know, that, that good old-fashioned, literally, where you would walk up on somebody's doorstep and knock on the door to actually talk to somebody. Turns out that, at that point, Tom is a little bit deaf, and so the neighbor helps out. They get inside, and Gray tells Killboy what he's there for, and immediately he is given a rendition with arms outstretched of 15 years on the Erie Canal. This is Jim Kaplan. I'm going to talk today about the uh, Buttonwood Agreement and the beginning in the history of Wall Street. The Buttonwood Agreement, many of you may or may not know, I assume most people don't know, was the founding document of the New York Stock Exchange, what began... Uh, Wall Street to be the uh, uh, center of American and perhaps international capitalism. In episode 425, New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan has the story of the Buttonwood Agreement, the founding document of the New York Stock Exchange. Well, many New Yorkers and many Americans generally considered Wall Street to be the world's most famous and important street. It's almost iconic. Uh, I ran many tourists surprised to find that Wall Street, once described as a short street with a river at one end and a church at the other, is only seven blocks long. You know, people would expect that such an important street would be uh, a much longer, a wider, but it's really been the center of uh, lower Manhattan in many respects. And I think iconically today, Wall Street is considered the American finance. Originally, it was named for a palisade wall built by the Dutch in the 1640s and torn down by the English in 1699. Some say the wall was built to keep out the Indians. Others say say the wall was built to keep out the English. Uh, Obviously, the latter was not successful. The street was an important east-west thoroughfare until the American Revolution. At that time, the entire city of New York home to about 15,000 people. It was south of uh, uh, City Hall Park. 
Wall Street, which for many years, perhaps a century or, or a century and a half, had no, uh, was totally commercial, and uh, is now significantly, if not largely, residential. Uh, the financial institutions, which became famous there, are now located in uh, Manhattan or elsewhere, but still the name Wall Street connotes the American financial institution. I mean, certainly the communists or the Russians, they wanted to know where American was, America was directed out of. Khrushchev certainly wanted to come to Wall Street. The agreement was signed in 1792 near a buttonwood tree, an American sycamore, on Wall Street. This is Don Williams. I'm here today to talk about my book, My Grandfather's Tool Chest. I should explain a little bit how it became Grandfather's Tool Chest because um, Grandfather was my inspiration for my book. He was a carpenter, an Adirondack guide, and a farmer up in the Adirondacks. And I inherited all my love of the Adirondacks and my love of tools and all those things, I think, from my grandfather. Uh, He was my inspiration for writing the book and for getting all that information down that includes the stories and the way the tools were used for over 400 tools. It's a book that weighs almost four pounds. (laughs) <laughs> and it includes 400 colored photographs and all the stories that go with the tools. In episode 426, we hear from Don Williams, who's 88, an educator, lecturer, columnist, and author. He's written 11 books on local and Adirondack history. Here are three tool tales from Don's newest book. A spud was used to pull bark off hemlock trees, Hemlock bark was used to produce tannic acid for tanning leather, a process that provided employment in the North Woods, especially in the 1800s. Bung starters were used to help install bungs or wooden plugs in barrels. Another tool looks like a tennis racket holding a U-shaped piece of cedar. It was used to fluff up feather beds. Williams worked many years in education, 20 years as principal of Kingsboro Elementary School in Gloversville. He's the author of Grandfather's Tool Chest. Hi, uh, my name's David Levine. I am a freelance writer who uh, lives in Albany, New York, and I recently published a book called The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. This is a collection of articles and essays that I wrote over the last decade or so as a contributing writer, mainly for Hudson Valley Magazine and Westchester Magazine. Also, there's a couple of things I did for some other magazines as well, but they're all about the Hudson Valley. I trace the history of the region all the way back to when dinosaurs ruled the Earth through the Ice Age and uh, what that left behind that made the Hudson Valley what it is through the first native peoples to inhabit the land, and then, of course, through European contact and colonial times, the American Revolution, and all the way through to modern times. Episode 427 features Albany journalist David Levine, author of The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. His book explains how Hudson, New York, for a time, was part of the whaling industry. Exactly. That was one of the most 
interesting stories that I ever reported either. I, I too, did not know that. But, in fact, Hudson, New York, was uh, essentially a farm community of about 10 families around the uh, time of the Revolutionary War until the British sort of put a, a, a block on the whaling industry out of New England with the business sort of shut down. A bunch of Nantucket whaling executives, if you will, started looking for a place where they could send boats out where they could escape you know, the British blockade. And they sailed up and down the uh, northeast coast and eventually all the way up the Hudson River until they came to what they be- they renamed as Hudson, New York. It had a bay that was deep enough to um, put their whaling ships. So they bought the land from the patroons and they essentially mm-hmm. built a company town from scratch. Like I said, it was just farmland. And they laid out a grid of streets they brought in all the businesses that whaling needed, like rope makers and sail makers and plubber boilers. Uh, there were more than a few saloons, of course, to uh, keep the men happy. Mm-hmm. And yes, for about 60 years, Hudson, and to a lesser extent, some of the other towns up and down the valley, uh, were a very important whaling center for America when whaling was you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, industries Uh, in the world. David Levine also includes stories about Alexander Hamilton, the Mohegans, and slavery in the time of Dutch colonial rule. Still more to come on this 2022 Historians Podcast Highlights episode. The U.S. Grant Cottage in Wilton, New York. The Sewing Girl's Tale. A Boyhood in Ilion, New York. And the Danger posed by Russian moles in the CIA. Ben Kemp, operations manager at Grant Cottage here, and we're very excited to have our bicentennial season here in 2022. Ulysses S. Grant, born in 1822, and uh, we're celebrating with a number of different uh, events this year. So we're excited to have people uh, interested in Ulysses S. Grant, and we expect uh, many more to be interested because of this bicentennial. Everybody loves an anniversary. So we are on Mount McGregor in uh, Wilton, New York, and it was the uh, final home. The Grant Cottage itself is a historic site that was the final home of Civil War General and two-term president Ulysses S. Grant. And so it's a uh, now just recently, as of um, 2021, a National Historic Landmark. In episode 428, Ben Kemp from Grant Cottage in Wilton, New York, where Ulysses Grant died after completing his memoirs. Grant was dying from throat cancer and also had lost his family's money in a Ponzi scheme. Friends, including Mark Twain, arranged for General Grant and his family to live in the Adirondack Cottage for the last few weeks of his life. Ben Kemp says Grant was born in Ohio. Grant was born in a small community called Point Pleasant in uh, very, very uh, southwestern uh, Ohio, uh, just about an hour uh, southeast of Cincinnati. A uh, very, very small community and remains uh, a very small community even today. Again, Ron Chernow, I think is how you say it, the man who wrote about Alexander Hamilton, has also written about uh, Ulysses Grant. Is, is that true, too? Yes, it, the uh, Chernow's biography is arguably the most popular biography written in, uh, I would say, the last uh, two decades or more. 
as far as book sales are concerned. And it's also generated an incredible amount of interest in the man himself uh, and, and has spurred people to learn more uh, about the man than, than just his military career um, mm. and a little bit more about his, his political career, uh, his world travels, uh, and his personal life. Grant lived at the Saratoga County Cottage with his family for several weeks in 1885, finishing his memoirs before his death July 23rd. Hi, I'm John Sweet. I'm a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm excited to be here talking about my new book, The Sewing Girl's Tale. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Through remarkable historical detective work, John Sweet recounts in vivid detail Lana Sawyer's decision to charge an upper-class man named Henry Bedlow with rape at a time when there was virtually no precedent for doing so, leading to a raw courtroom drama, riots in the streets, appearances by famous Americans of the New Republic, and vigorous public debate over class privilege and double standards. John Sweet's book, The Sewing Girl's Tale, is subtitled A Story of Crime and Consequences, in revolutionary America. You're talking here about a a rape case, and it's the early years of the American Republic. It's still this late 1700s. Couldn't have been the first rape case in in the colonies, or or was it? This is a book about a young woman of modest means, a 17-year-old sewing girl who faced a terrible decision whether or not to charge a rich, well-connected man with rape. Uh, It was a decision that ultimately transformed her life um, and his. It was a story about youth and the lure of romance, about trust and betrayal, uh, about recourse and recovery. In some ways, it's also a kind of a mystery. I spent years puzzling over the fragmentary evidence that exists and contradictory claims to figure out what actually happened. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand the characters at the heart of the story. In episode 429, John Sweet is author of The Sewing Girl's Tale, the story of the first published rape trial in American history. The incident took place in New York City. Alexander Hamilton did some legal work in the case. Sweet is a professor at the University of North Carolina. Hello, Bob. This is Kevin Hall, and I'm here today to talk about Illion. The book I wrote, Ilian, My Childhood, My Memories, Growing Up in a Bygone Era. And I thank you for that opportunity for me to do so. The book itself, i got to give you just a little background, came about because of my grandchildren. And they had always asked Grandpa, what was it like for you, Grandpa, growing up? I would tell them different stories, and so they said, we'd like to know more. And that kind of led me to the production of my book, sitting down one day and just starting putting my notes down on paper, pretty soon an outline formed, and then pretty soon I had 100-plus pages, and I just (laughs) kept going, and as such, I produced the book. In episode 430, Kevin Hall talks about his book about growing up in Illion, New York. Illion, My Childhood, My Memories, Growing Up in a Bygone Era. 
In a memoir following Kevin Hall from age 6 to 13, the book also explores how Ilian and the West Mohawk Valley physically changed over the years. Remington Arms, the gunmaker, still employs several hundred people in Ilian. The firm makes assault rifles, and upset with New York State gun regulations, Remington moved its headquarters from Ilian to Georgia. In October 1978, a boat goes aground on the Chesapeake Bay. This incident becomes the focus of my new book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. What happens on that day is when the Coast Guard goes to investigate this boat that's gone aground, they find bullets scattered on the deck. They go below into the galley and they find top secret documents and they find a birth transmitter uh, which is used for communicating with satellites. But there's no sign of the boat's owner, John Paisley, a former CIA official. What's happened to John Paisley and why he has disappeared or perhaps committed suicide becomes the focus of an investigation of the hero of my true life book, Pete Bagley, a former CIA officer. In episode 431, former New York Times investigative reporter Howard Bloom explores the danger posed by the suspected infiltration of America's Central Intelligence Agency by a series of Russian moles or Russian spies through the years. It's a very combustible atmosphere inside our intelligence agencies, and it would be sort of ludicrous, except it is the safety of the nation. Our national security is at stake, and lives in the Ukraine are also at stake. And it's often reported that uh, Vladimir Putin was a a KGB agent, right, at one time in his career. So he's very supportive, I would imagine, of whatever it is the KGB is doing, or it's not called the KGB anymore, is it? No, but it's just a change of names, but the practices, the names change, but the actions stay the same. And the KGB has been running something called Department 13. Uh, And this is the one that sends over defectors here, but they're really dispatched agents uh, to infiltrate our intelligence services. They're sent over here on a mission uh, and they're, they're, not, they're spreading disinformation, they're spreading lies that they want us to believe. And this is something that Putin was involved in, and he's still doing. And you can see how aggressive Putin's KGB is. Uh, they're going off, they're going to England, and they're, they're poisoning uh, ex-agents. And you have to believe that this continuum of treason is also happening here, too, that they're trying to infiltrate and succeeding in infiltrating our intelligence agencies. The, the Russian spy agency, maybe to call it that, is better run than the CIA? And, and why would that be? Wouldn't they have some of the same problems that the CIA faces uh, with, uh, oh, this one's a defector, oh, this one's a, a mole? They have some of the same problems, but they're more a regimented uh organization. I mean, the thing about getting traders, there are greedy people all over the world, uh, you know, and, and any Russian or Americans. It used to be that the Russians had a, a greater sense of, of loyalty than Americans. Americans were interested in maybe making a, a, a buck. They thought they could sell their secrets. The Russians 
were more loyal. What will be interesting in, in the months ahead, after the invasion of Ukraine, many K- KGB spies are rethinking what Russia is doing. And so there are going to be more defectors approaching the CIA. However, that's also an opportunity uh, for the KGB to pass on false defectors. So <laughs> the CIA really has to be on alert. It's, it's, a, it's a unique situation where we're living in because there will be this surge of KGB or SVR, as they are now, defectors, but you really have to question them mm. if they are valid defectors. Howard Bloom is author of the nonfiction book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. So there you have it, excerpts from 12 recent podcasts. You can find our podcast archived on bobcudmore.com, our website. And when you're on the website, uh, click on our GoFundMe link to help support the Historian's Podcast. To which you've been listening, I'm Bob Cudmore.